0: Good morning, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, those verses you can also find in the back of your bulletin. Uh, The last time we were in the book of Luke, which was two weeks ago now, if you recall, Jesus called people to be ready for the day that he would return in judgment. And those verses that we studied a couple weeks ago closed with Jesus emphasizing the urgency of Reconciling with God or making peace with God before the day of judgment comes. Well, in our, in our text for this week, Jesus makes it clear that the way to be reconciled with God, the way to be ready for eternity, is through repentance. So please follow along as I read starting in verse 1 of Luke 13. At that time, some people came and reported to him, being Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And he responded to them, Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as well. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, Listen, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and have not found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, Sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it will produce fruit next year. But if not, you can cut it down. As he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called out to her, Woman, you are free of your disability. Then he laid his hands on her, and instantly she was restored to begin to glorify God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, there are six days when work should be done. Therefore, come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrites, does not each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, for 18 years. Should not she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he had said these things, all his adversaries were humiliated, but the whole crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things he was doing. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Father, as we just sang, we pray that you would speak to us this morning by your word. Father, we are a people who are dependent on you speaking, but we give you praise because you have spoken to us through your word. We pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning. We would have humility to sit under your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our world, there are a number of self-destructive behaviors, extremely self-destructive behaviors that people nevertheless engage in perhaps compulsive gambling, perhaps severe overeating or a a diet that is so bad that it actually begins to threaten one's health, drug or or alcohol addiction. Well, the the list could just go on and on. The point is that, that these types of behaviors are so serious that they can become a threat to a person's life. There are things that we can do that can actually threaten our life. You all know this. This is why family members or friends often intervene or confront those who might be engaging in these type of behaviors. Their loved ones realize that if these people continue down the path that they are on, they will will die. Now, this realization sometimes leads those engaged in these types of self-destructive behaviors to seek help. Maybe they go to a rehabilitation center for drug or or alcohol addiction. They, They value their life, they value their loved ones, and they come to realize that they will die if something doesn't change. So they seek help. They seek to change. They know if they want to live, they must be willing to, to give up their former way of life. They must be willing to give up these self-destructive behaviors and live in a new way. Now friends, this has some relation to Jesus' words to us here in these verses. He told that crowd that came to him, and he tells you today, that you must repent so that you do not perish. Jesus is not talking about losing one's earthly life here. He is talking about spiritual death, eternal death. Now, repenting is the idea of turning from one's sins, giving up a, a former way of life and turning to, to trust in Jesus, to rely on Him, to follow Him instead. Jesus' point is that to continue in one's sin. To continue in one sin will result in destruction. It's the, the ultimate self-destructive behavior, if you will, because it will bring spiritual death. It will bring eternal judgment. Therefore, Jesus calls you to turn from your sins and repentance and place your faith in Jesus. That's how you can be ready for the day of judgment. Remember two weeks ago, how can you be ready? Be ready for the return of Jesus. Be ready for the day of judgment. How might you be ready? Let's turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. So the the main idea of these verses, and therefore this sermon this morning, is live a life of repentance that you might live. Live a life of repentance that you might find eternal life. I have three points to help us consider that idea this morning. The first is the need for repentance. That will be verses 1 through 5 of Luke 13. The second is the, the evidence of repentance. What is the evidence of repentance? What does it look like? Be verses 6 through 9. And then finally, we'll have a, a case study in a, a lack of repentance. A lack of repentance, verses 10 through 17. So first, the, the need for Repentance. So as our, our verses open, we see Jesus was, was traveling and, and teaching as he has done throughout his ministry as an itinerant teacher and preacher to people. As he is traveling around and as he is teaching, a group of people come up to him and tell him about some people from Galilee. This would have been a, a northern region of Israel, separated from the rest of Israel by the, the, the area of Samaria, which was uh, not part of the nation of Israel. Well, he tells them about people from Galilee who were killed while they were offering sacrifices in the temple. That is what is meant by the fact that their own blood, the Galilean's blood, was mixed with the the blood of their sacrifices. Well, he finds out that they were killed by Pilate, who was the Roman governor of the region. The same man who would later put Jesus to death. Now, this would have certainly been considered an outrage though not something unheard of, that people would be put to death, especially by the Romans, while offering worship to God in the temple. Probably taking place at Passover, That's probably why those people from Galilee were traveling all the way down to Jerusalem, to the temple. This is the only historical record we have of the event, so we don't really have any information about why Pilate did this. Now, those from Galilee had a reputation for rebellion, for being a little bit subversive, so maybe it was that they had committed some act of rebellion against the Roman government. Perhaps there had been a dust-up in Galilee, so when uh, they travel a bit closer to Jerusalem, Pirate takes his opportunity and puts him to death, but we don't know. Whatever the circumstances, though, it was front-page news in the nation of Israel. People were interested in this. They wanted Jesus' thoughts. Those who, who brought this report to Jesus were looking for an explanation. Why did this happen? Isn't that something that people often ask after tragedy? Think of the recent earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. It's left many people asking, well, why did that happen? The the assumption of those that brought this report seems to be that the Galileans must have been like really bad people. They must have been like extra, super sinful, and that's why this has happened to them. Now, those in Jerusalem and Judea, uh, they kind of look down on the people from Galilee and so that's probably not an incredible leap for them. They're tempted to believe that anyway. They kind of look down on these people, so they seem to be asking Jesus, "Yeah, like what did they do to deserve this? Like, let us know. And what was it that they did so bad that they deserved this fate? In response, Jesus brought up a, another recent and unexplainable tragedy. Guess yesterday's front page news talks about a tower that fell in Salome, which was a section of Jerusalem. Evidently killed and crushed 18 people when it fell. When Jesus asked the, asked the crowd if those 18 people from Jerusalem were more sinful than the other residents of Jerusalem, is that why this tower fell on them? And you can see a little bit maybe of what Jesus is doing. You look down on those in Galilee. Well, you know, What about you residents of Jerusalem? Uh, What about people from the other part of Israel who similarly experienced tragedy? In both cases, Jesus clearly says, No, neither the 18 in Jerusalem nor the Galileans died because they were more sinful than everybody else. And the assumption of the the crowds seemed to be that, Ah, yeah we understand bad things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to bad people. This is just an example of God's judgment for how bad these people are. That seems to be something of a common assumption in Jesus' day. You don't need to turn there, but in John chapter 9, we read this about an interaction between Jesus and his disciples. As Jesus was passing by... He saw a man blind from birth, so a man born blind. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Evidently, no other explanation. Somebody's fault that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Again, the people of Jesus' day seem to assume tragedy and suffering were the direct result of someone's sin. Bad things happen to bad people. Friends, Jesus shattered that assumption in these verses. Now, I want to be clear. In a general sense, it is right to say that all evil and suffering and death in the world is the result of sin. Death and suffering came into the world at the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned. Death, suffering, sickness, tragedy, natural disasters, and the rest came into the world as the result of sin. It came in at the fall and it just expanded from there. Suffering and and death are are part of the, the curse of sin. Natural disasters like the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria would not happen were it not for the sin of Adam. But, but, that is not the same thing as saying that a specific tragedy or a specific suffering or a specific bad thing that happens to someone is because they did something wrong, or because they were particularly sinful, or that they're just a particularly bad person. Friends, it is wrong to assign blame for tragedies or natural disasters to someone's personal sin. Unfortunately, Christian pastors have done this quite often following natural disasters. You may have heard quotes or sayings from pastors after something particularly bad happened saying, ah, this is God's judgment on these people. Friends, it is almost always wrong to assume that someone is experiencing suffering as a direct result of their personal sin. This was the mistake that Job's friends made when it came to Job. They could not get it out of their head that Job must have just done something super bad That's why all this bad stuff has happened to Job. But just get to the end of Job, and God rebukes them for that thought. Jesus is saying that you should not blame someone for their own suffering. And friends, isn't the life of Jesus Christ like prime evidence of that? Jesus suffered and died on the cross, endured the wrath of God, though he had done nothing wrong. Now, this is not to say that there are no consequences to your sin. It's not to say that there are no consequences to a person's sin. Someone who's addicted to gambling might suffer homelessness and hunger because they gambled away all of their money. The drug addict may experience severe health problems because of their addiction. There are some times that we can see someone's poor choices, Someone's sin leading directly to something in their life. But that's not normal. And we should note that these crowds were right to understand that we humans are accountable to God. They seem to just have to to know this. You know, they were part of the people of God, they had God's word. They seem to have an understanding that people are accountable to God. God does judge. Well, that's true. We are. You are accountable to God. God does hate sin. He hates wickedness. And bad things sometimes are God's judgment over sin and wickedness. And just think of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. They lied to the Holy Spirit, struck down by God. However, again, We just usually have no idea what the Lord is up to in a particular situation. We generally have no idea why someone might be suffering. We generally have no idea why a disaster or a tragedy like the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria may have happened. It's a shallow view of God's providence to think we do. God is up to so many different things in the world that we have just no insight into. We are unaware of. Friends, you do not know the mind of God. I do not know the mind of God, and you do not know the mind of God, and you should not assume you do. Therefore, you should be very careful not to assume that someone is suffering or experiencing tragedy because they did something wrong you don't know. I remember a couple of years ago when Bijou was preparing for his uh, cancer surgery. Uh, He told me that people from his old church tradition told them that he got cancer because he had left that church tradition to come to an evangelical church. I'm thinking, that was bad. It wasn't bad. They thought it was bad. And that, oh, this is God's judgment in your life for this. Friends, Jesus is saying that type of thinking is wrong. It'd be wrong to say that the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria came because the people living in those regions were especially sinful. Brothers and sisters, it can be very easy to judge others when they are experiencing tragedy and suffering. It would be very easy to assume they are at fault. It would be very easy to look down on them in your own pride, thinking that things are going well in your life because you're a good person. You pray more than other people. You read the Bible more. You serve the church more. You're wiser and smarter. So your life's going well. Other people should just be more like you, and things would go better for them. But again, friends, Jesus throws a hand grenade into the middle of that type of thinking. It is wrong to assume that bad things happen to bad people. It is just as wrong to assume that good things happen to good people. Friends, your prosperity is not necessarily a sign of God's favor. However, this is such a common assumption among Christians. When things go well for us, we think, must have gotten everything right. Like, look at me. On the flip side, we assume that if something goes wrong in our lives, it must mean we did something wrong. You think you must? God must have wanted me to do something else. I made the wrong choice. I must have missed God's best for my life. My friends experiencing suffering or tragedy, Something going wrong in your life does not mean you are somehow outside of the will of God. It's true that God disciplines the ones He loves. It's true that God is teaching us something no matter what comes into our lives. But suffering is not necessarily a sign of God's displeasure with you. God does not promise you prosperity or a trouble free existence even if you faithfully follow Him. In fact, quite the opposite. 2 Timothy 3.12, All, all, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, then what is Jesus' point in these verses? Friends, his, his point is that all sin is deserving of death. All are equally deserving of the fate of those Galileans and those on whom that tower fell. His point is that tragedy is an opportunity to look inward rather than outward. Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop a heart of wisdom. Those unexplainable tragedies that happen, the sickness that comes, the natural disaster that strikes if it doesn't happen to us, it shouldn't lead us to judge others, but say, that same thing might happen to me tomorrow. Am I right with God? Have I repented? So twice in these verses, Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Friends, we are all sinners, and the wages of sin is death the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Wages of sin is death. Therefore, you need to repent. The only solution to sin and death is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Jesus took the curse of sin, death, upon himself on the cross, that all who turn from their sins and in repentance and faith can find eternal life. Friends, the fact that your life continues, the fact that maybe disaster has never struck, I've never been in an earthquake, not one that that I've felt at least, but the fact that disaster has not struck you is simply a sign of God's mercy and patience and kindness to you. That patience and kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. You need to reconcile with God before it is too late. One day, you will face judgment. Will you be ready? Our remaining verses this morning help us to understand the nature of true repentance. What does repentance look? We need to repent to live. What does that look like? And so, point to the the evidence of repentance, verses 6 through 9. And he told this parable A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, Listen, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, "Sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it will produce fruit next year. But if not, you can cut it down." A few weeks ago, in our men's Bible study, Brother Patrick was telling us about his frustration with a date palm and a mango tree he had in the he has in the courtyard of his villa. Uh, he was eager when he moved into this villa that uh, he might get some fruit off these trees, but neither were producing fruit. But he was having to spend time and money watering them. Now come to find out that her brother Patrick had the wrong type of mango and date palm. They were the male varieties that will never produce fruit. But Patrick's story and frustration is a great summary of Jesus' parable. A man planted a fig tree a number of years ago It was not producing any fruit, no figs. Well, unlike Patrick, this man had the, the right kind of tree. Figs should be expected to grow. We should get some fruit. Therefore, this man grew frustrated with this tree. He wanted to cut it down because it was just taking up valuable water and nutrients from other trees. It was useless. It was taking the nutrients and the water and the soil that could have gone to the trees that were producing fruit. However, the vineyard worker pleaded with the owner to allow him to spend a year giving careful attention to the tree, caring for it, fertilizing it. Let's see, might it produce fruit? It's grown, let's give it a chance. If that did not work, he told the owner that he could then cut it down. Now, friends, the tree in this parable represents the nation of Israel, it Sounds very similar to that parable of the, the vineyard or the song of the vineyard that we find in Isaiah chapter 5. Well, like the uh, owner and the vineyard worker in this parable, God had been so patient with the nation of Israel. You know your Old Testament. You know that God gave the nation of Israel his law. He gave them his promises. He sent them prophet after prophet to teach them the word of the Lord and to call the people to Repentance. After hundreds of years, really thousands of years, not just three years, they still were not producing fruit. God was still merciful and compassionate. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to further cultivate and nourish the nation, to teach the people of Israel, to minister to the people of Israel that they might bear fruit. But notice that they did not respond even to Jesus, even to this additional loving care, this additional cultivation on behalf of the divine gardener. They would be cut down. They would be destroyed. If they did not even respond to, to Jesus in repentance, there would be no hope that they would ever produce fruit. Friends, the big takeaway from this parable is that the sign of true repentance is that you bear fruit. In other words, that you produce good works. It is that your life is marked by holiness. It's that you persevere in the faith. You follow God even through the sufferings and trials of this life. Now from time to time, I'll ask someone I meet here in Fujairah if they're a Christian. You get into a spiritual conversation, I'll, I'll ask them if they're a Christian, and sometimes people respond by saying something like this to me. Of course, my family are Christians. Or, of course, I'm a Christian. I come from Uganda. Or, of course, I'm a Christian. I come from Kerala. Or, of course, I'm a Christian. I, I come from Manila. Why would you think anything else? As it as if it should be obvious that they're a Christian just just based on where they came from. Like that's answer enough in and of itself. But friends, the reality is that no one is born a Christian. Not one single person on this earth is born a Christian. Kids, teenagers, you are not Christian just because you were born to parents who might be Christian and who bring you to church. Friends, you are not a Christian just because you come from the Christian area of your country. No, Christians are those who, by God's grace, have been born again, converted, made alive by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and responded then to God in repentance and faith. Christians are not those who are born on this earth in a certain place, but have been born by the transforming, born again by the transforming. Power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, remember, Jesus was speaking to the people of Israel here, the people of God. If anyone should say, Ah, yeah, Christian, Christian, look where I come from, it should have been them. They thought they were okay, they're descendants of Abraham. But Jesus' message to them was, Repent, or you will likewise perish. It's the same message that John the Baptist brought to the people of Israel when they came to him to be baptized. Uh, Way earlier, so a long time ago now in our study of Luke, back in Luke chapter three, verses seven through nine, this is what we read John the Baptist saying. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. Produce fruit consistent with repentance. And do not start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Or, I'm from Kenya. I'm from Kerala. We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, produce fruit consistent with repentance live lives of holiness that is the mark of the christian you're not guaranteed salvation simply because of who your parents were or where you came from you must live a life of repentance the sign of repentance is not that you grew up going to church it's not even that you were baptized both those things are important they're good they're commanded by god But they do not save anyone. Friends, the fact that you may have prayed a sinner's prayer when you were a child or went to the front of the church at some point when you were a child is not proof of your repentance. The evidence of your repentance is whether your life changed, whether you're persevering in the faith, whether you're being sanctified. You must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Friends, this is one of the reasons that God gives the church the job of affirming someone's profession of faith. The church is given the task of examining someone's life to see, as best they can tell, if a person is bearing fruit in keeping with repentance before they baptize them or accept them into membership. If a person was to begin living a life that is not keeping with repentance... To live in unrepentant sin, to refuse to repent when called to repentance by the people of the church. The church is called to excommunicate them because their life is no longer looking like that of a Christian. They are not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. J.I. Packer writes this about genuine repentance. The New Testament word for repentance means changing one's mind so that one's views, values, goals, and ways are changed and one's whole life is lived differently. The change is radical, both inwardly and outwardly. Mind and judgment, will and affections, behavior and lifestyle, motives and purposes are all involved. Repenting means starting to live a new life. Church, I have a simple question for you to ask yourself this week. How has your life changed since you professed faith in Jesus Christ? Would you say that your whole life has lived differently? Your values, goals, views, and ways have been changed? Your mind, will, and affections been changed by the love of God and the transforming power of the gospel? We see an example of what this is to look like in, the, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 when Paul praises the Christians in Thessalonica because, this is what he writes, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Turned to God from idols, turned away from their sins to serve the living and true God. Friends, that's what repentance looks like. Like the addict who gives up their drug of or alcohol addiction those in Thessalonica and the church in Thessalonica gave up their idols they turned from their sins to serve God uh, repentance is not just being sorrowful and apologizing repentance is not just a sorrow over the consequences of sin when you realize oh yeah something bad happened to me because I did do you know something bad I'm experiencing the consequences of my sin I you know that lie cost me uh, It's not just regret that your sin was discovered and that you're now going to receive some sort of punishment or consequence from someone else. No, genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is a work of the Lord that leads someone to recognize the holiness of God, the perfection and beauty and majesty and purity of God. And then in light of that, admit the disgusting and vile nature of their sin in relation to him. But then to embrace God's forgiveness that comes in Jesus. To forsake and turn from their sins and follow the Lord instead. Friends, this is why the author of Hebrews can say that without holiness, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Growing holiness is the sign of genuine repentance. The fruit that you produce, the good works that you walk in, they are not what save you. But they are important. They are the, the evidence of whether or not you have truly repented and been saved. A church bearing fruit and consistent with repentance is so important. If that is the mark of genuine repentance, how do we live lives of repentance? Well, how does that come about? Friends, it's by abiding in Jesus Christ. Listen to these words of Jesus from John chapter 15, verses 4 through 6. Remain in me, and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, connected to the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit, because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch, and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Friends, it's an act of God's sovereign grace that led you to repentance. If you are a Christian, God at one point sovereignly joined you to the vine of Christ. You must abide in Christ and stay connected to Christ in order to bear fruit. It's God's sustaining, strengthening, and nourishing grace that will produce fruit in your life. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. No good. Apart from Him, you cannot bear fruit. Friends, if you are to be ready for eternity, you must abide in Christ. All those who do not will be cut down and destroyed. And friends, if you are to abide in Christ, you must first be united to him by faith. Again, this is a sovereign work of God's grace. You are united to Christ or attached to the vine through God's work of grace. If you are a Christian, you do not choose to repent and turn from your sins and follow the Lord because you're such a good person. Ah, good things happen to good people. No, it was an act of God's sovereign grace. It was not from yourselves. It was a gift of God. And it is His grace and His gift that continues to nourish and strengthen you throughout your lives. Friends, abiding in Christ is to depend completely on Jesus, to find your security in Him, to trust in Him, As John goes on to write in John 15, or as Jesus goes on to say in John 15, I should say, abiding in Jesus is to abide in his word and in his love. This is how Pastor Sinclair Ferguson puts it. In a nutshell, abiding in Christ means allowing his word to fill our minds, direct our wills, and transform our affections. In other words, our relationship to Christ is intimately connected to what we do with our Bibles the believer also must never allow ourselves to drift from the daily contemplation of the cross as the irrefutable demonstration of that love, or from dependence on the spirit who sheds it abroad in our hearts. A Christian, if you want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, you must abide in God's word and set your mind on God's love that was demonstrated at the cross. The good news is this abiding is also a sovereign work of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. He will do it. Philippians 1, six. he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you have been attached to the vine, God does not leave you on your own, but continues to strengthen you and prune you and nourish you as you stay attached to the vine, that you might bear fruit. So, friends, the sign of or the evidence of genuine repentance is a life that bears fruit. that grows in holiness. But in our, our, our final point of the sermon, our final verses, we're going to look at a case study and a lack of repentance. Look with me again at verse 10. As he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called out to her, woman, you are free of your disability. Then he laid his hands on her, and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, There are six days when work should be done. Therefore, come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrites, does not each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, for 18 years. Should not she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he had said these things, all his adversaries were humiliated. But the whole crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things he was doing. And Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, countered a, a woman who had been physically suffering, it seems, at the hands of an, an unclean spirit. And though she had been suffering for 18 years, longer than some of you have been alive, Jesus' power was such and is such that he healed her and delivered her instantaneously. She did not have to go rest and recuperate in a moment. Though unsurprisingly, she's overjoyed at what Jesus did for her and begins glorifying God. On the other hand, the leader of the synagogue was indignant or outraged or greatly angered because Jesus dared to heal on the Sabbath. He had violated the Pharisees' man-made Sabbath rules. Friends, we've thought about this in recent weeks. And we know that God did indeed command the Sabbath to be a day of rest. People were not supposed to work on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees had taken those restrictions so far that they only allowed people to even receive medical treatment if their life was like in grave danger. Like, okay, then you can receive some sort of treatment. The problem was that in piling up new Sabbath rule upon new Sabbath rule, adding and adding and adding to what could possibly be meant as work, though God was never that specific, they had missed the purpose of the law. The leader of the synagogue thought that what mattered most was rule following, external obedience, ritual. Again, we've thought a lot about that in recent weeks. But he, the leader of the synagogue and the other Pharisees, had neglected the more important matters of love of God and love of neighbor. They were not bearing fruit consistent with repentance. They were not bearing fruit consistent with repentance. Jesus points this out powerfully by calling out their hypocrisy. He said that they had more compassion on their animals than they had for their fellow Israelites. They cared more for their donkey or their ox than they cared for this woman or others who might be similarly suffering. The Pharisees' understanding of the law was so legalistic that they would rather a woman continue to suffer with this disability than be healed. Their understanding was so backwards that they saw it as right and good to refrain from showing mercy and doing good to their neighbor. Jesus was the opposite. The entire Gospels are a testimony to his great compassion for people. It's the the same compassion that we see in these verses this morning. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus taught that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Yes, the, the Sabbath was a way to honor God. It was also meant for the good of his people so that they might rest. Friends, in healing this woman, Jesus allowed her to rest. She was freed from her bondage to this disabling spirit. She was free from this burden that she had been carrying for 18 years. She could rest. Friends, Jesus came to give his people rest. He came to free them from their burden of sin. Jesus' healing here was a sign of great compassion. But even more than that, it was a sign of greater things to come, as were all of his miracles. They were a sign that he was the Messiah, the promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse of sin. Jesus' healing of this woman is ultimately a picture of our own salvation. It's a picture of his victory over sin and death. That one who is more powerful than the curse of sin and that of the serpent is here. Friends, as Luke told us back in chapter four, Jesus came to set the captives free. Like God rescued the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt, Jesus came to free His people from their slavery to sin. Friend, no one is born a Christian. You are all born in bondage to sin. You we're all born under the curse of sin. But Jesus came to set you free, that you might find eternal life and find eternal rest in him. Friends, Jesus healed this woman that she might truly enjoy that kind of rest. And yet the leader of the synagogue and the other Pharisees hated Jesus for it. Their rejection of Jesus their lack of repentance was shown in a lack of love and mercy for others. God's desire was not for legalistic regulations. He has commands. We are to obey them. But God's desire was not for legalistic regulations, but instead for hearts that love their neighbors and sought their good. Hearts that love Jesus. These people were not living lives of repentance, and therefore one day they would be cut off. The humiliation they experienced before others in verse 17 was just a foretaste of the humiliation they would one day experience before God. Friends, if you want to know if you're bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, simply ask whether you are loving others. There's more you can ask, but certainly not less. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another because... Love is from God, and everyone who loves God has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. The leader of the synagogue showed that he cared more for his own interest than the interest of others. He cared more for his ox than he cared for this woman's suffering. Friends, what dominates your own thinking? What dominates your own actions? Is it your own interests? Is it the interests of others? At the end of the day, the the Pharisee wanted to be able to stand on his own efforts. All the Pharisees wanted to be able to stand on their own efforts. Their thinking was that good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. I'll just do my best to be better than everyone else. Create a bunch more rules that I can follow better than other people, and that'll justify me before God. They failed to see their own need for repentance and therefore judged anyone who did not live up to their standards. But church, only those who give up their own efforts and turn to God in repentance and faith can find true freedom, true rest, and true life. This is what that woman did. She recognized that she did nothing to heal herself. Just like you have done nothing to save yourself if you're a Christian. Instead, she simply responded in praise and worship for what God had done for her. She rested in Jesus and found joy in Jesus. She abided in Jesus. Friends, it is only when you trust in Jesus and rest in him that you can be truly freed to then show his love and compassion to others. It's only as you are abiding in him that you can bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because you're no longer seeking to justify yourself. But you are confessing the horror of your sin in relation to a holy God. Seeking his forgiveness. Turning from your sins to follow him. Go back to John 15. To abide in Jesus or to rest in him means that you rest in his finished work on the cross. You stop working and working, seeking to earn God's righteousness on your own. Friend, salvation does not come by praying so many times a day, or praying so long each day. It does not come from doing enough good to outweigh your bad. It comes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It comes by bringing your burden of sin to Him, pleading for His mercy, and turning and following Him. And Christian, a a subtle form of legalism is present. Therefore, when you believe that God's love for you is dependent on how well you perform. When you believe that God loves you more when you do a better job of obeying. He loves you a little less on those days where you struggle more with sin or are struggling to rest in Jesus' finished work on the cross. That thinking is present when you're worried something bad is going to happen to you because you didn't read your Bible one morning. You're waiting for the tower to fall. That's just another way of thinking bad things happen to bad people. Friends, God does not love you for what you have done. If you are a Christian, God loves you because he has chosen to love you. And he has demonstrated that love by sending his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus demonstrated that love for dying for you. If you have repented of your sins, if God has saved you by the power of the gospel, you can rest in that love. You do not have to earn it because it has been freely given. Friends, it's only when you rest in that love that you are free to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. As we close, listen to these words from Galatians chapter 5. For you, Christian, we're called to be free. Only do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement love your neighbor as yourself. Brothers and sisters, that is what true repentance looks like. Let's pray.